sure. Yeah, sounds great. Let's see right. what it takes us. Okay. Welcome to Crooner's Corner. I'm your co-host, Marley Williams. I'm your other co-host, Charlie Williams. And we're super psyched to have Mo Troper zooming into the Crooner's Corner today. Mo is a musician, writer, and producer from Portland, and his latest project is an album-length cover of Revolver, the Beatles' 1966 classic. So we're just gonna chat with Mo about the album and maybe over the course of this hour or so, one of us will manage to say something semi-original about the most talked about band of all time. Maybe not. Either way, we're really glad to have you here, Mo. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a big, big choice to say I'm going to take on the Beatles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is, so that, okay, I have to just let you know, that is my mom's dog, a dachshund. Oh, great. Who is like currently howling um, for some reason. He never does that, but inopportune. I, I, I knew that, so I just wanted to let you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know where to where to start with the Beatles thing. Yeah, so why, why out of all the albums, why did you choose uh, this one? Um, yeah, I guess because it's like, uh, with the exception of the White Album, which just would have been like an unrealistic undertaking, it's like the most varied Beatles album stylistically, I feel like. Um, and so I think because I had sort of like a, limited arsenal um i didn't want to like do a beatles album that was uniform you know i like kind of wanted to do like some of the other candidates were like hard day's night and rubber soul um but those are pretty just like consistent um as far as like the instrumentation on those albums is concerned and so i, I felt like that would be like pretty boring um unless i like really sort of like shook up the arrangements for those songs but i like I'm pretty into like, uh, like extremely reverential covers. I think that like it is cool when bands like do like a weird twist on some like really kind of like canonized song or album. But I sometimes think that like that pendulum can swing like too far, and it can be like kind of pretentious. When, when the song is like totally unrecognizable. I'm trying to think of like what an example of that is. I feel like, yeah, I, I just think that like, the, oh, this is like, you know, bridge over troubled water, but in like a minor key type thing. I just think that there's like something about that that's like kind of corny to me. So I wanted to do something that was like as close to the original arrangements as possible. And I felt like in order to do that, it would like have to be an album that's kind of all over the place uh -huh. well i know you did the um the cheryl crow cover way back when and that was like definitely i know it's different than doing the beatles but it's like you know you you played it how she played it sure yeah i tried to play it straight uh -huh. and you didn't like change put it in a different key or anything i don't know did you put it in no, i think it's in the same key uh -huh. um and yeah it was pretty just it was like you know the the closest we could get to recording that song that way with like what we had and you know in, in like a day or whatever right because this is maybe not the first 
Beatles album, I think, that used the sitar. Maybe they used that on Rubber Soul very briefly, but yeah. I'm guessing a sitar, 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 whatever it is, you didn't have that lying around, so you had to, you had to a lot of these songs. I had to borrow one from the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Uh, no, uh, it, uh, yeah, I did not have a sitar lying around. Um, they do make like those really goofy pedals, like uh, like the electroharmonics Ravi Shankar, whatever that you can like turn the signal of an electric guitar into a sitar. But yeah, I tried. I experimented with like uh, MIDI sitar at one point, and it was like so tasteless. Like I already I already think that like that uh, the like really sort of like classical Indian stuff on the Beatles records like hasn't aged the best mm-hmm. um, and so but I feel like reimagining that with like a midi sitar is like taking it in to like a whole new level of of tastelessness um, and like just a lack of self-awareness I feel like that mm-hmm. I couldn't couldn't commit to uh, you just mean that that type of like appropriation of this Indian music is not something we should be doing and I don't think so yeah I don't I think it's like pretty like dilettante-ish um sort of and like just their whole vibe (laughs) with it you know like just the fact that like George Harrison took like three sitar lessons and suddenly was like writing these songs that were centered around Mm -hmm. that instrumentation just seems like pretty uh just like something that like a shitty musician in their early 20s would do you know, um, I don't think he's like the devil or anything, but it just hasn't aged well. Totally. I, I, I really like your version of um, It's Love You Too is the song. Yeah, totally. Thanks. Like you did it, it, it rocks, you know, more than you kind of turned it into just a straight up rock song, it seemed. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Um, so, you use the just electric guitar for the sitar parts, sitar parts? Yeah, it was just, I didn't, um, yeah, it was just a guitar that was like tuned. I'm pretty sure it's just C and G. I just tuned all the strings to like two notes to give it like a droney. Right. That's super cool. That's super cool. Um, yeah, so because the instrumentation so varied on this it, and you didn't like shy, we didn't strip stuff away necessarily. You just found like a different way to approach that part. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Eleanor Rigby, you obviously didn't have a fucking like orchestra to sure make the song, but you still, I don't know, it still has a very full sound. It's not like just like a stripped down version of it. That's good. That's that's good that it came across. Yeah, that was another one that I tried originally to arrange for like MIDI strings, but I think it's just like I just don't know if anybody really wants to like listen to that. Um, <laughs> Like, it's like, I think it might be like a cool, like party trick, like, oh, listen to this like MIDI sitar or whatever. But I, but in terms of that, like actually translating to something that anybody wants to listen to, I just, I, I wouldn't want to listen to that, you know? Really, I feel you. So did you record this album in your home? Yeah. Yeah. So had it always been like the plan to record an album length cover or were you kind of just you know playing around and um yeah so i i just recorded a cover of the first record 
and I was just sort of playing around. And then sort of like, as I was recording that, I was just like, oh, this would just be a fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, sort of occurred to me that I could probably, I mean, I've really like internalized all the Beatles music. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not like especially challenging to mm -hmm. record those songs and to like recall the arrangements and stuff. I think that like, some of the harmonies and sort of specifics of the arrangements are are difficult to were difficult to like reconstruct but um yeah in general i just wanted like a project that would keep me busy and would like sort of keep me motivated to like continue playing music since i'm not doing that right now really you know uh -huh. for sure for right sure. so did you i mean you said you've kind of internalized the Beatles, you know, it's something you've probably heard thousands and thousands of times, but did you kind of learn anything from this really close study of them and like listening to the songs repeatedly and then trying to replicate it yourself? Yeah, totally. I think that the two things that I learned are like how unintuitive some of the lead guitar parts are that yeah. George plays in particular. Um, I think that like they're not really how I have like learned how to play guitar or would approach guitar. So I think like just sort of, uh, I guess I was like, you know, I was being disparaging about George Harrison like a few minutes ago, but I think like to his credit, I'm sort of just like always um, like finding new things to appreciate about his contribution to that band. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then also just like some of the harmonies that I had never really like you know, I would, I never really had like an opportunity to like reconstruct those vocal harmonies. And so even though I had like a general idea of what was going on, there is some stuff that's like really pretty complex um, on this album. And I was really committed to like, of all, like of, of anything on the album, I think I was really committed to making sure that the harmonies were like one-to-one. -one. Yes. Uh, because I, I knew that if I knew how they were making them, I could like recreate them as opposed to some of the other stuff, which just would have been impossible, you know? Yeah. So like some of the, the harmonies, it took you a while to kind of pick out what, what the interval was or whatever. Yeah, totally. Um, specifically, there's a third harmony in Eleanor Rigby. Oh, really? That is difficult to figure out and then good day sunshine has some really difficult harmonies uh-huh on like the big good day sunshine part yeah um and it's usually again it's actually usually george sort of the stack is it is generally paul the highest george in the middle and john at the bottom and the relationship is sort of that john and paul sing like it's usually like a third apart or something it's usually like a pretty basic um like the there is a story about how a lot of those early songs like from me to you where they sang they would like sing in unison and then split off into harmony when they first got those songs published they weren't sure which was like the the lead melody um because because the harmony is like so great it's like indistinguishable from the lead melody and so i feel like that sort of carried carried like even if it was like a john song or something paul's harmony would be so strong that it would sometimes sort of like overwhelm the the melody and sort of seem like the harmony or seem like the main melody for a second so that that was kind of it's like but then george sort of sings in the middle and has like a this just this like pretty weird 
tenor and is sometimes singing a, a harmony that is like really like he'll be singing like a a sixth or like some sort of weird note that isn't really obvious um and so it's usually like figuring out a George harmony and figuring out like exactly what the movement is that was really um, difficult. So I know you used to play in a Beatles cover band. Marley and I saw you at, um, what was that show? No Fun, maybe? No. Valentine's. Is that Valentine's with Strange Ranger? Oh, yeah. It was like kind of a surprise. I didn't know you were going to play Beatles song. Yeah. And then it was just like, oh, shit. Yeah. The shitty Beatles was the name of that cover band, yeah. Um, and that in that band, who you kind of div- div- divided the songs like the other guy would sing. Was it based off of who sang the songs? Were you like, I'm going to do the John songs, you do the Paul songs, or was it just kind of? Sort of. No, but not really. I mean, like we kind of just like dressed up as them, but didn't really like designate mm-hmm. that way. Like we covered like Helter Skelter and like. Dan, who was like, uh, like George, sang it. Um, so it, yeah, it just really was like, um, who do who do like who would you most like to dress up as? And like you know, if somebody would like that was that was like, um, uh, yeah, not really. And then we would you know just see who sounded the best singing whatever song, and they would they would do it. It wouldn't be like, well, you sound like shit, but you're George, so you have to. Right. Okay. Uh, Who did you dress up as? John. <laughs> Good old John. Yeah. Um, is he your favorite Beatle? It has to be. No, I, th- I think Paul is actually. Really? Yeah. For sure. I kind of go. I go through phases with like John or Paul generally. I mean. Me too. I got into the. Lennon solo stuff for the first time a couple years ago and I really got I really dug that but then I bought um Ram actually at your store the Hawthorne Game Exchange and um that one fucking blew me away and that kind of I'm like as of now I'm on the Paul train (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah totally that record is pretty phenomenal um and uh I yeah yeah Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah. Um, I I feel you, uh, with sort of like alternating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like it's tough. I feel like the my favorite Beatles songs are probably ultimately John songs, um, but in terms of like, I think that Paul is a lot more consistent, and I think that like just I just don't think that that band would have. I think that Revolver is like sort of the the point where McCartney becomes McCartney. Yeah. Sort of, and sort of like adopts. It's like the beginning of his kind of like master of ceremonies. Like like I can do anything mm-hmm. vibe. And mm-hmm. and I think that like that band never would have become they never would have like entered their quote unquote important phase or like real art phase if it if it weren't for McCartney's guidance um so I kind of feel like you know if your favorite records are like post 66 Beatles records then McCartney sort of like has to be your favorite is how I feel about it um it kind of it kind of annoys me that like people have this 
I don't know, perception of Paul that he's like the traditional Beatle or whatever. Like sure. all of his shit is just as weird as any as any of theirs. If not totally. Yeah, I think that um I mean he, you know, it was McCartney who was like in early 66, I think he was the Beatle that was like really sort of um wanting to be like with it is my understanding like he was really sort of like um you know the the first beetle to meet yoko and was like really sort of like invested in the arts scene like at large in london and and was like really sort of like bringing a lot of material to um was sort of like bringing all these external influences like to the to the band like was the one that got really into Stockhausen and like was the one that like cut up the tape samples for Tomorrow Never Knows. And so, yeah, it is, it is bizarre when people are like, oh, the yesterday guy or whatever. Cause it's like, yeah, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. Like McCartney has written some really cheesy shit, but I think he was also like, um, just like really pretty single-handedly responsible for that, that, um, transitional period you know and a lot of just sort of the experimental stuff that that band did uh, at least early on mm -hmm. so is it correct to say that revolver kind of is a transitional album it's marking like their turn into taking more musical risks it's kind of it's like the last album it seems before john met yoko if I, like if i have my chronology correct before I mean, the sitar was being used before, but before George really like got into it and was like going away to India and you know doing all that shit. And it was before you know before the summer of love. Mm -hmm. It was so it was kind of like marking the end of one phase and the beginning of another one. Totally. Um, yeah, I think that that's like definitely accurate. I think it's the beginning of like their individual interests. De developing um, and sort of like being identifiable. So it's like, yeah, George has the, you know, sitar shit. And then John has, I don't, I don't really know. I think it's like, it's the, for John, it's him losing his, it, be, it isn't his band anymore, really. You know, I think John was like sort of the de facto front man of that band. And I think that he sort of like loses control or cedes control to Paul. Um, and Ringo like really comes to the forefront as a drummer. It's the first album of the Beatles where they're close miking the drums. And so he has like more incentive to go crazy on the drum set. Um, and yeah, all that stuff is like really new. It's like, that is the, the first album where a lot of that is present. But it also seems like, so I was, I was kind of reading at this Beatles, the Philip Norman Beatles biography, and I was reading it, the, kind of the chapter around Revolver before this, and it was kind of talking about how at the end of their like 65 world tour on the flight home, they were all telling their manager, Brian Epstein, like, we're done. This is it. Like, we want to quit being the Beatles. And so they were all like, these fractures were already forming. They were all kind of losing interest and they were interested in doing their own things and making their own independent like mark more so than they had been when they were like all just one unit of guys with the same haircut. <laughs> totally, yeah. And there is, I think it is from 66. It's the, I'm pretty sure it's the 
Maureen Cleaver interview where John says the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Yeah, it was purpose, controversy too, yeah. Yeah, and the purpose of that interview was, I'm pretty sure she goes to each individual Beatles house. So it's like a Beatles interview that's not conducted with them um, as like a collective. It's not like a traditional press conference. And the point of that interview, I think, was to sort of like make that known that they like all were sort of doing their own thing and um, becoming, you know, it was becoming less of like the four-headed monster or whatever. Right, and we're gonna be less of this kind of like the good sweet boys who play for, mm -hmm. you know, screaming stadiums of teenage girls and we're gonna take risks and we might say ridiculous shit like the Beatles are more popular than Jesus and yeah, that and start, you know, yeah, being more controversial. Like I was reading about, um, do you guys know about, it's called The Butcher Sleeve? <laughs> it was some album I think they released in between Rubber Soul and Revolver maybe of just um, songs off of Rubber Soul and Help and maybe a few unreleased tracks or something, but like on this. Oh, God. Yeah. I was just going to say that it's, it's basically, it's um, the track lists in America and England for Beatles albums were different up until Sgt. Pepper. Mm -hmm. And so, and it was basically so Capital could like milk them of like ev everything they were worth. So uh, usually like the track listings in the US were um, pretty castrated. Mm -hmm. Revolver, I think only has two John songs in the US. Yes. Um, so three of his songs are cut and mm -hmm. then they would sort of like take whatever was left over and put them on these compilations. So yeah, Yesterday and Today, I think is the Butcher one. But like on the sleeve that holds the album is like them and they're all in white coats mm -hmm. holding like baby's head, like baby toy heads and baby toy legs. And then they're just holding neat carcasses. And apparently this just created like an upstorm, like a firestorm. People were calling the record label like so angry and so offended by this crass, violent cover. <laughs> very meek by today's standards but <laughs> it's yeah. an interesting moment to look back it's like it's like smell the glow yeah <laughs> yeah totally um, that is something i wanted to talk to you about actually the whole uk versus american track listing yeah revolver specifically to me is one like you said it's heavily castrated the, the u.s version of that one and you know like I was flipping through records. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, Revolver. And I get, no, that's not Revolver. <laughs> fuck is in your Birkin sink. Yeah, it's like, is it I'm Only Sleeping is missing too? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like Dr. Uh, maybe Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert, and your Birkin sink and I'm Only Sleeping, I think are the three. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's just inexcusable. Um, it's, it's uh, and I think that it really contributes to like, that record not getting its due until i mean I, th I was talking to somebody else about this recently where there is that record is like in a very interesting blind spot because it is a transitional record and it is like none of it was performed live despite the band still being an active touring band at that point so they could have conceivably played those songs live but they decided not to and it's sort of like they recorded it knowing that nobody would really give a shit like it's sort of like the this really kind of like effortless masterpiece like sort of the photo negative of like sergeant pepper or something because they were like who cares mm -hmm. like you know you know like you were saying like 
didn't really care about being the Beatles anymore. We're kind of just like generally indifferent and felt like they had grown out of like being in a stupid rock band. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that, that context really sort of like informed the record. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the U S track listing, I think that like you, there are some reviews of that version of the album specifically in America that are not too enthusiastic. Like there, there's a, a famous crawdaddy review where the I'm pretty sure the writer is like it's pathetic that the centerpiece on this record is like a children's song yeah. and it's like well it would be the centerpiece if you remove i'm only sleeping and then your bird can sing and you know like all these john songs that are so like such an essential part of the character of that album yeah. um, and so i think it wasn't until the 80s when like they made the track listings when they re when they released the beatles albums on cds they they on cd they made sure that the track listings were like consistent mm -hmm. internationally and i think that that's when people were like oh like this is the album that we were supposed to hear and then i think people realized that, that it was like actually their masterpiece or whatever um, yeah and so you even include two additional songs that aren't on the original track or on the even the UK track listing. So um, what, what, what was the thinking with that? Uh, just that they were like, my understanding is that um, the Beatles would release a, a double A side the same day that the album came out that was, that was separate from the album. Um, and so like with Rubber Soul, it was day tripper and we can work it out and then with revolver and the same day they released paperback writer and rain mm -hmm. and i just think that that's like such a cool concept that you like go to the store and like not only do you get to buy this album but you get to buy like an exclusive single mm -hmm. um that like it, it is its own entity sort of really awesome um and uh because they were technically a part of the revolver sessions and because I really like rain, especially, I just wanted to re record them. I thought it would be like, uh, <laughs> uh, really, um, like a purist thing to do. I figured it was something like that. I knew it had to have connection either recorded at the same time. And, uh, I was reading Willamette week the other day and I was like, you were on it about the, about the, uh, about your album, talking about rain. Uh, I just remember on Twitter that you. Oh yeah, <laughs> the two-inch tape, two-inch tape, daddy. Yeah, he's like, well, you don't need any drum fills anymore, or something like. <laughs> yeah. That is a. I love that kind of guy. Why don't you? What is this? Yeah. Why don't you explain? Yeah, he basically. There was like in the Willamette Week article, they said like, and if you're wondering if he like nailed the drum fill he did or something. And then, so like they tweeted that and some like older gentleman uh, responded and was like, well, you don't really need to nail drum fills in today's day and age because unless you're like recording to two inch tape um, because of Pro Tools yeah, or something. Um, which is, yeah, just like so trite at this point, just that kind of person yeah no one has talent anymore you know yeah, i know it's like the youtube thing or like like the people who like 
like you know what i'm talking about like when you watch a video of like led zeppelin or something and like the pinned comment is like and say unlike all the other kids i appreciate real music yes. <laughs> and then like all the replies to him are like dads that are being like this comment just gave me faith in like today's generation or whatever <laughs> i love that shit it's so cheesy uh, yeah it is <laughs> some kids still like real music yeah like back when they didn't rely on auto-tune and no I actually, I really, I like that you were, you are open to like the Beatles being criticized, even as like a huge fan, you know, like, um, just like, I'm sure you have to explain your Beatles fandom sometimes, because now it's like kind of a thing where people are, I don't know, reevaluating them as people and like their music, you know, like sure. that it's all well known about his you know, personality sometimes not being best, but like, I really respect that you are fine with people, you know, criticizing the Beatles. Yeah, generally. I mean, I think I'm fine with people criticizing anything. Mm -hmm. I think that like, I think that like they're, I think that anything that becomes that institutionalized is really pretty obnoxious. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, it's a similar relationship that like, I think some people have with like God where they like acknowledge that like, like they're also open to like their, their religious beliefs being criticized, but they're like, well, you know, at the end of the day, I have like a personal relationship with God that's like different or distinct, you know? And I think that it's like the same thing for me where like, I think pretty much any problem you could have with that band or any of the people in that band is valid. Yeah, I have like sort of a, I just have like a personal relationship with that band that at this point in my life is like, I know is sort of like incorruptible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if I were like less secure in that, I would be like arguing with people on the internet about like Ringo or whatever, but it just feels like the biggest fucking waste of time, you know? And I do think that there's a lot I think that in general, when people have problems with something that institutionalized, they should be like considered, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and sort of like elevated. Um, I think that there is like a really pretty toxic cult of personality that surrounds that band and like classic rock in general. Um, yeah. And I think anything that is like that canonized um, has to go or has to be like, you know uh just thought about you know um yeah i guess that's how i feel about that uh -huh. um so obviously the beatles were a big part of growing up for you were they maybe the main influence on you wanting to make your own music yeah i think so i mean like maybe not wanting to make my own music but I think like when I was a kid and I was really like sort of drawn to that aspect of the band, like I guess the cult of personality, like they were really, they made like, I think like this is the case with all pop stars, but like they made being famous look really fun. And so like, yeah, I was like, you know, idolized them in that way. Mm -hmm. where I was like, oh, this is like, 
this would be like awesome to do you know um this would, it would be awesome to have to like be in a cartoon and like all this stuff and then i think like when i was a teenager or whatever the thing that made me want to like make my own music were like my friends i think mostly like just that it seemed like really accessible and i I'd never really considered that before because i think i like you know when i was like five or whatever i wanted to be like a beetle and then like got a little older and I was like okay this is like unrealistic I was kind of like disillusioned and then I started going to DIY shows and I was like oh like everyone can actually play music and I like can sort of do this thing in like a very limited way can I charge my can I get my computer charged really quick yeah definitely all right <laughs> oh no problem we don't want one of those days <laughs> the dogs are barking the computer's dying. Yeah. Um, so. Well, we were, I feel like that, that that was a good actually transition moment of what we were just talking about. Um, kind of talking about more how, how you, you know, got started performing and, mm -hmm. and singing specifically. Um, did you always know you could sing or, I mean, did you grow up singing and knowing that you, have, you can carry a tune or was that something you kind of discovered later as yeah. Form a band well i would say that like my i mean my dad was a singer um and he was the person who i like inherited the beatles obsession from uh, and so he was like always singing beatles songs mm -hmm. and i was like always singing with him so um yeah i think that like i guess the the beatles specifically did have like a big influence on my like desire or ability to sing or whatever but yeah it wasn't really something I like cared a lot about um until yeah I started like playing music I guess like actually playing music you know like learning how to play guitar and stuff um but it was never really like you know I was never in like choir or like um did any kind of I never like identified as like a singer I guess you know? uh -huh. Um, there's, I'm, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm interested in your father. So what type of singer was he? Uh, he was just like a rock <laughs> singer. Oh. Um, uh, he, I mean, yeah, he, uh, so, you know, my mom basically moved with me to Portland from LA and remarried. So I had like I only knew my father for like five years and then finally reconnected with him when I was 25, which was like four years ago. So I didn't know him for like 20 years. Um, and so I have like an incomplete knowledge sort of, of, of I mean, he, he was like uh, trying to like make it um, as like a singer in a rock band in Los Angeles. And so, um, and then was eventually like in a band that was signed to like DreamWorks, I think. Oh, wow. um, and now kind of just like plays the club circuit in like Santa Cruz, or at least was before COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think he, he was just like, um, and I, yeah, maybe he'll listen to this. I guess I don't really care, but he, he's just like sort of an asshole. And sort of like couldn't really like um just has this sort of like boundless bitterness 
that like made it so that he could never really like like maintain relations like the relationships required for like having any kind of career in music i think i think he's just like um you know like uh he basically was like uh in the original version of the wallflowers with jacob dylan and then like basically my understanding is that there was like a uh like a power struggle um and that he ended up like leaving the band because he was like fuck jacob dylan like uh like he doesn't know how to sing uh and so that could be like a totally exaggerated version of that story but that's what i've heard i think the the band was called like the boot heels or something um and so yeah i mean just i just think he's like an incredible talent but just unfortunately like not a terrific person to be around yeah that's that's tough that's a crazy story though <laughs> Jacob yeah, yeah. Um, but he but he, but I mean he he did he wasn't he was a lot of fun to be around if you were like five years old I think right. he like was really into collecting you know he collected records and he collected like pop culture ephemera um, so like you know I was like a kid growing up in the 90s but I was around all this shit from the 60s and so I just had like a totally fucked up notion of like the world sort of like my, like i would have friends that were playing with like power rangers or whatever and i'd be like oh you don't watch like the osmonds cartoon you know like you don't know about the brady bunch or whatever you know um and so that is like a you know it was i kind of like thought of my relationship with him as this like and sort of like the environment that he lived in as this like just like sanctuary you know um, of like beetles etc stuff wow so are you aware of the parallels between your relationship with your father and john lennon's relationship with his father because i think yeah yes period of estrangement from his father who is kind of like this guy who's i'm not quite sure what his father did but he traveled around and he was like Maybe he worked on the Navy, like on ships or something, and okay. not in the picture for like 20 years of John Lennon's life. And then I think once the Beatles got really big, he might have kind of. Yes, I do know about this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I guess I thought a little bit. I mean, I just think in general, a lot of people have like distant fathers, so it never really seemed like. I mean, there are a lot of things that I like connect, I guess, with John Lennon, over nothing bad. I'm not like, oh, we're both, but yeah, but I think that it was never, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I do think that probably a lot of his issues come from like childhood trauma. I know that he was kind of like shuffled around um, different parental figures growing up. And so I think that I can relate to that a little bit, but yeah. yeah, I just think that I've met so many people with like that experience or with a similar experience, you know. Uh, yeah. Right. It's uh, pretty universal to have a strength. Shitty dad. Shitty dad. Yeah. Which is maybe what we should call this podcast, Shitty Dad. <laughs> I love Pruner's Corner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
so far we've spent at least like 20 minutes of every episode talking about our guest dad so <laughs> oh really okay kind of becoming a weird it's, theme, it's <laughs> like Freudian yeah it, fuck yeah it comes out quickly too um does he he's got to like your music though right does he uh, I wouldn't go that far no I mean he uh he like the reason I said like maybe he'll I mean he seems like he like keeps tabs on me and we don't really talk about the things that I do but sometimes he'll say things that like for example when we were on the David Lee Part tour we stayed with him which is so weird already because I see him I, I was probably seeing him like once or twice a year and so we played in Santa Cruz and it was like yeah it was just like super weird like david and asher and ben and i sleeping on my like in my birth father's apartment <laughs> on the floor and like he's like he's just a weird like like he smokes inside his like apartment and there's always a tv on playing music videos and he like doesn't have any groceries like he only eats like cheese quesadillas really is kind of he's like really pretty eccentric and like was just like not letting anybody go to sleep like was just like sort of like I think Ben like took the bait or something and was like like oh like what do you mean the Bee Gees used to be like a psychedelic pop band or something and so it was just like five hours of of that like indoctrination and and so it was like just the combination of like that and like David and it was just like absolutely insane. I don't know what what was the question? Barley, do you know who David Leapheart is it how do you say his name? David Leapheart, yeah. He's um, in him and I. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We went to a did we see oh, yeah, my so, friend my friend Robert opened up for him once back years ago. This yeah, that's guy? so fucking random though. This is so funny. Marley and I went and saw him just because Marley's friend was opening and like okay. I, I knew your music But um we had no idea who he was. We didn't understand. Oh, I bet that was such a trip. And like, yeah, he's like signing like VHS Like it's like it was just so bizarre. So you played in his band, basically. Yeah, totally. Um oh I remember the question. So he so my dad will just basically say like like I introduced him to Asher and he was like oh so you've played with Mo for a while and that was just like really weird to me because like I've never talked to him about Asher and he would have to like scour the liner notes and then like make some kind of connection there so I think that he like I don't really we, we just don't really talk about my music but I think that he like listens to it you know I don't know warm inside or just kind of like confused what the he's kind of he's somehow he's following your music from afar uh, i wouldn't say it makes me feel warm inside uh uh i think i'm like at least consciously pretty indifferent yeah cool so (laughs) (laughs) i want to transition though in um, I was hoping you could tell the, the listeners at home a story about you singing in school and getting in trouble. Oh, yeah. If you're comfortable here, yeah. I just think that's such a great yeah. 
that's pretty i mean that's pretty much the whole story i basically like would i i was going to beaumont at the time middle school and um yeah i don't really know like what happened i just i sort of would just like i racked up like a ton of referrals and it got to a point where i like actually just seemed like everything i was doing was resulting in a referral and there was one point when i like and i don't even really remember this but i guess i was like singing show tunes in class and i was like sent to the principal's office and like suspended there's like really sort of like a feel looking from the vice principal about how like i was singing show tunes and being like recusant or whatever you know and it's just like a really it's just like a really funny thing because like it just you know i think like at the time i was like man like everyone is just like such a hard ass then i think i was like you know like told by either the teacher or like it was sort of implied to me that i just like didn't respect authority and like it wasn't them it was me sort of and like now in hindsight reading that letter i'm like they were a hard ass like who is gonna like like that's so punitive to like just deal with somebody singing show tunes in like that sort of way and i and the thing about beaumont is that it was such a like just like a sketchy kind of like i feel like they were always like it was the first time i had encountered the like dress code like you know like how to make sure you don't look like a gang member like type shit at at like a public school environment and so it just seemed like really they were just like over the top in every respect um and you're a child you should be yeah. able to like sixth grade yeah and like <laughs> just seemed like uh yeah i don't know i guess that's pretty much it that's pretty much the whole story uh, you were you were singing at that point i was that's true it sounds like a clown were you being a, like a jokester i think so yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so since this is technically a singing podcast i want to talk to you about your singing style i feel i feel like it's you kind of you talk about how your diy was super super important to you um but i think you you know the common thing of like the punk scenes like you don't really have to play or you know you don't really know how need but it's more a very technically skilled singer i i don't know i don't know what my question is i guess but just like existing as a legit singer in the punk scene what i guess did you ever think of that were you not that you're like i'm better than everyone obviously but you know what i mean um yeah, I guess I didn't really consider it until I saw Jason Clackley play mm-hmm. for the first time. And that to me was like really eye-opening mm-hmm. because he was like, I think that Jason is like a phenomenal singer and seeing him sing that way in like that context and sort of like not carry himself in any kind of way I think that that was like really sort of inspiring. I mean, I think that like I really wanted to be like accepted by like punks mm-hmm. sort of. And so like there were some maybe like theatrical tendencies or whatever that I tried to like subdue mm-hmm. at least at least initially. You know, I think that when I was like 18 I would have been too self-conscious to like 
record like a four-part vocal harmony or something but i think that um i mean no i think that i like found like i i don't know yeah i think that i like never really i think that like there are always there were always people that i wanted to like be as good as Mm -hmm. and so there was never really like when i was like younger i was like oh i want to be as good as jason or like you know i mean there were a ton of really talented singers in the scene like holland from like a villain would play like you know diy shows and just like pretty much blow everyone away um and um so and you know like wild like wild ones and four wild ones eskimo and sons like would play basements too and danielle had like one of the greatest voices i'd ever heard and so like there was no like like i think that it was cool to like grow up in a scene where I thought that there were so many people who were great singers who were unassuming and who were playing like houses. I think that that was the thing that was so like influential about it is that it felt like accessible and there was like something you could do as a singer that wasn't just like choir or like, you know, karaoke or whatever I thought, like the options. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I wasn't like, oh, like just wait until they get a taste of this. That was that was like never really my vibe. And there, you know, I guess there had been like times. Yeah, I don't know. I think that. Um, yeah, um, just never really occurred to me. That sounds like it was like a really cool time to be going to shows in Portland. Obviously, I wasn't I wasn't going to shows yet, but I mean, it just all the bands you. Listen to. We're playing playing basement at the time. That had to be super cool to be part of that. Totally, yeah. I think it was very fertile. Um, I think that like um, for a while, I was like really committed to the idea that it was like the best time. And then I think now I'm like a little more careful about that because yeah. you know, yeah. whatever. A- a- every like, there's some cool stuff happening now that I think is like kids are probably also I mean not right now but obviously but I think that there is like a house scene that we're just like not a part of or at least I'm not a part of Um, and yeah I don't know I mean I think maybe the only like real material difference is that there were just like more like people were just down to have like more shows in their houses and those houses were like all over the place and like all sort of like in like central portland which i feel like is not the case anymore i mean like there was really just like a it seemed like there was like a house every night that was like how i met aria was like he had like a he curated like a show calendar on his myspace and it was like literally every night there was like you know the booger dome or like some weird house that was like in northeast it was like oh this is like on like 13th and Holman or whatever like that's crazy yeah um, like that's like Airbnb territory now like there would never be any yeah. shows over there uh, um, you were also like for me I first started going to shows like around 2015 I think 
so at that point you were super busy you were joining the label or the tape label i guess yeah it was a tape label and then it kind of became just a full-blown thing I guess. an empire yeah <laughs> but yeah you i think then and now you are like do you think about wanting to help like be kind of a i don't know what the right word but just speak out about the scene or like build up the scene still like as you get older is that something you think about yeah definitely i mean i think that i was in i was in 2015 too i think it was like a little more like like wound up in like a clout clouty kind of thing where i think that like i don't know like uh I would like do everything different if I could do good cheer again. I think that like it became like this weird obsession with like PR mm-hmm. and stuff and like sort of felt like we had like a like a statement for everything and it just felt very like predictive text type vibe. Yep. Where, uh, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, I think that now I feel pretty, um, I feel the same way and I feel like it's like a more genuine feeling i guess you know i think that like bands like i feel like since the pandemic started i've like been living inside twitter pretty much and like i like one of the things about like music twitter that i can't stand is like bands that are constantly repping bands that are bigger than them and like i feel like that even has started to happen on like Bandcamp friday where people will be like don't forget to pre-order the japanese breakfast album and it's like i'm not gonna like who's who's going to like know who that band is over Jap- who like doesn't already know the Japanese breakfast exists. And so like, I think that like that has made me sort of like, um, uh, has like sort of re-inspired me to want to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like, there's really cool stuff happening in Portland right now too. Like there's that label propaganda kid that's like run by like literal teenagers like and they're putting out like a constant stream of new stuff and so like yeah i don't it's like delicate because like i don't want to like be like like you kids have any plans this this weekend that i but like i also like want to I don't want to just like talk about the same old shit or like get into this weird like online circle jerk with like a bunch of bands that are like bigger than me and oh thank you for retweeting me like you made my day um i just think that that's like a really kind of like um transient feeding if feeling you know um even though it feels really good for a second i think that like people should really be trying to like build up their scene and you're doing you did that um you did a write-up for growing growing pains didn't you do oh yeah um they are they're legit kids yeah totally definitely Um, it was great i said i when they played at your shop it just i like their parent, a couple parents were there, and I just, I, I love that shit. I think. Yeah. No, me too. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, I think that band's great, and I think that they're also like, like, I really only know Carl personally. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I've talked to, I think Jack, I've talked to a little bit, but like, I think Carl before the pandemic was like making it, I would just see him in like every show that was yeah. all ages. And I just think that that is like really awesome. I think that like, he's an example of somebody who just like really wants to like make shit happen and is just like so supportive of like everyone. And I think that that's like great, you know, sort of somebody who isn't like corrupted by like politics or like, you know, I feel like there are some people that I just feel like I've known for too long kind of, and I'm like, Oh, well I would go to their show, but I don't want them to like see me support them or whatever, you know? And that's just like insane. Like, just those like sort of mental gymnastics are like insane but i just feel like that's like totally absent with like younger people you know yeah definitely i mean i i met carl i don't i don't know him super well but like at some like snow roller show like in like 2016 2017 maybe so yeah they at that point they had to be on yeah whatever so yeah um your kind of endorsement of smaller bands. I have some Stroper uh, items here. Um, okay. This is a clipping from your All Ages Action. Okay. It's like sun faded. Dude, I've been, I have to, yeah. Wow, <laughs> it has some resin on it. Yeah, a little. <laughs> wow, that's sweet. So this is Saturday, December 12th, 2015, and you gave my band, who had literally no recordings except for three demos, a write-up. And, uh, yeah. Was it, ni- was it nice? Oh, yeah, dude. It was super nice. Okay, good. Okay. It was like, and you, you obviously knew, like, exactly what we, you mentioned that uh, one of the songs, A Rocker, which strongly evokes There's Nothing Wrong With Love Era, Built to Spill. Oh, sweet. Okay. And I'm pretty sure that song is, it's so blatant. <laughs> you, know that, okay. uh, you you hit you hit the nail on the head. That's good. Okay. Just for you to give like that band a write up was you know I, I was like, damn that was pretty cool. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, I really liked that column. Yeah. Really, but um, I would read it all the time. I would always I would always look forward to reading. Yeah. There were some there were some weeks where there was like nothing. There was like no DIY stuff, so it would have to be like Chicago at the zoo. Ah. Like or like Ziggy Marley at Music Millennial or something. And it'd be like, fuck, how am I gonna fill this with that? It's funny, the other artist is <laughs> Uncle Moon. <laughs> I okay, totally. And that is like a pretty negative write-up, I think. Um, yeah, it's starting to be really fucking insufferable. So Yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad it's not like uh-huh. Some tips from separating the art from the artist. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> how to listen to Sun Kill Moon with a clear conscience. I I, uh, I did a cover of one of, the, it was not Sun Kill Moon, but it was Red House Painters, and this was before the latest allegation. And, like, even then, I felt the need to, like, preface that I'm like, I don't actually like this guy, but totally. great song. Yeah, he really, uh, he went from just, like, kind of ordinary asshole like really just I think that I was talking to somebody not to go on like a crazy tangent but I was talking to somebody about that band recently and like it is one of the like I mean I guess you know we're talking about John Lennon like a a famously an asshole and like there are some 
there are some artists where it like doesn't affect me as much, but there is something about Mark Kozilek that is like really just made it so I can't listen to that shit anymore. And I think it like the combination of the like allegations and just the terrible new records, I think it just sort of makes, it sort of just like reveals him it's just very like revealing. It's just like, oh, this guy has like always been kind of like a pathetic loser. And like his music has always been kind of this like smoke and mirrors thing. It's like, how long can you do the like, like day I got groceries and parked my car in a three hour spot. And it's like, how long can you do that? And he's been doing that for like six years now. Yeah. So it's like, it's like grow up. It's like act your age. How old is he? Like 55? Oh my God. Yeah. It's, Dude, those new albums are insane. unbearable. Just like free jazz in the background. <laughs> it's unbearable. It's just, <laughs> it's like South Park music. <laughs> it's comedy music. Yeah, and um, I guess if you want to approach it like that, it's probably kind of funny. <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, yeah. oh, no, I didn't. It wasn't you. I was like, I can't. This. I'm not even laughing at this. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. Uh-huh. Okay, we don't want to keep you too much longer, Mo, but uh, I have another Troper item here. Okay. Oh, yeah. 2013. That's, yeah, 2013 record, Your Rival. Uh, album. When you look back on that band, what, what, do, what, do you, what are your thoughts? You feel... <laughs> <laughs> no, How much time do you have? <laughs> I'll be a little more specific. Because, like, I feel like this band is a perfect example of like you are a great power pop musician but this is like walking that line you know it's like kind of when pop punk thinks of power pop sure totally like you probably wanted to be a straight up pop record at this point what was what were you trying to like fit into a scene yeah like, definitely punk? yeah totally that's exactly it um and uh yeah, I mean, like I said, I wanted people who were like punk to accept me. So I think that it was a little bit of a conscious effort to do that. And then it was also like playing with people who are also in like hardcore bands. And right. so it was like, you know, like Nate, I think, would play more aggressively than someone like Asher or whatever, you know, and it sort yeah. of like gave the band that vibe mm-hmm. uh, and i think sort of our like the only band that was sort of like in the middle of that venn diagram was like weezer kind of it was like yeah. the only sort of common reference point so um yeah so my, i guess my thoughts are like it's a little too like self-conscious um, yeah when i when i look back on it and like i never really like revisit that album I think it's like just too, it just sounds like, you know, I mean, I just think that it's like being in your early 20s or like 19 or whatever. It's like a pretty terrible, um, I think that it can like result in some cool music or whatever, but nobody actually wants to like think about what they were like at that point in their lives. And so that's how I feel about it. But yeah, I think you totally hit the nail on the head. It's like, it's like, uh, it's an album that really wants, it's like a fundamentally a power pop album that is like trying pretty hard to be like emo or pop punk adjacent. Yeah, definitely. So there was, um, 
like so there's like a kind of a shifting lineup in that band right yeah definitely did that ever kind of affect the sound do you think yeah definitely um i mean it was like originally yeah i mean it was just like everybody you know it was originally like nate me jake anger from cower and like our friend Jarrett Doman, who ended up being in Sabonis, and like yeah. every everybody, I think that Jarrett was really pretty like sympathetic to it being like a tuneful band, but everyone was just like constantly in the band, just pushing for it to be like harder and like less cheesy and faster. And so I was like, okay, like, <laughs> like uh, uh, it just sort of like ended up. I think that that album is like sort of the the end result kind of of just like a lot of just sort of like confusion about what kind of band we even were you know there's a great there's i'm sure you've seen it but there's a great video of you guys playing at burgerville oh yeah and you even say Jesus. you're like Aria's 25th birthday. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh God, yeah. That's like the that was like our third or fourth show. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because Jake Anger quit, and Parker was like, "Well, I'll play bass." Uh-huh. And I think it was like literally the day of. And I was like, I I feel like I wrote like next to each song like key of D uh-huh. or something. <laughs> and so I feel like he's just. But that was like the vibe. Where like I feel like the songwriting was so ambitious, but like we we just like never really practiced, and like whenever we would like all get together, like we would end up just making like I don't know, like just like garbage for fun that had like nothing to do with the band. Uh-huh. You know? um, we like weren't disciplined. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you're a kid, it's like yeah, you just joined today, but whatever, we got. to it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, well, Charlie played some show with Dante years and years ago where yeah, his friend Ken was going to fill in on the bass because one of, so someone couldn't play and then Ken just forgot to bring his bass. <laughs> oh, shit. How <laughs> was, was that? It was a terrible <laughs> show. It was, for one, it was, you know, <laughs> when we were underage, we had to wait outside. They gave us a certain sell that we didn't sell, obviously. So we had to. My dad paid them um, because, like, we owed them money. Okay, it was like a pay-to-play thing. <laughs> and you know, I didn't know any point and fucking. So just like we had to wait outside, we fucking owed them money, and then we were like getting ready to load in finally and like play our set, and then it's like, where, where's my bass? <laughs> and so he just like sat. And watched us play. Oh my god, that is so bad. Yeah, it was a. There's some you just like get yourself into these situations when you're a kid. Yeah. That are just it just makes like even though it's like a local show, it feels like a 14 hour shift or something. Like it's just like so long and challenging and inconvenient somehow. My my favorite like bad. My favorite story like that is like the Exquisites one time played a house show in Kelso, and for some reason there was like no, I think that like, because it was close to Seattle, they were like, yeah, you can backline. So like there was like a PA 
and then like a really shitty drum kit with like all broken cymbals and like a single um like uh one of those like red knob fender solid state amps from the 80s that was like a, a 112 and so like both guitars went into the amp and then uh the bass and the vocals went through the pa and just like ter- terrible yeah it's like those where they're like yeah just just run the bass through the pa it's like no. um so uh, let's let's um and i just want to ask you what's your what's your plan what's your move what are you i mean you did the cover album but like what, what's what's for mocho per solo what's um so we're talking about this is a debut this is a debut or a premiere this news um we're talking about doing a 100 song album (laughs) here first wow yeah um and uh yeah i sent tle a bunch of demos and they were like we really like this one (laughs) and like singled out one song there wasn't a hundred demos but it was like 30 or something um so i just think it would be like really funny just to do a 100 song album. I, I just think that there's something about that that's like so uh just ridiculous you're gonna challenge the magnetic fields for long yeah, yeah. Short, short songs all of them Seven. songs yeah kind of like vignettes oh. <laughs> there's like uh yeah, there's like some really, uh, uh, yeah, I don't really know. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's got some un- unusual turns. Good. Yeah. Um, are you planning on uh, playing with the same lineup? Uh, yeah, Jared moved to Seattle, but I think he moved back to Portland now. So um, if we're able to like play shows again, I think that, you know, we have like a tour tentatively booked at the end of the year for tree fort which is like inconceivable i haven't like actually thought about touring in like over a year now um but yeah it's that's the plan wait till the end of this year you're playing because tree fort is still happening so we have like sort of this our booking agent keeps having to like construct a tour around tree fort and so that'll be the plan whenever tree fort happens but yeah it should be um jared and brendan and chitra um Mm -hmm and um probably not john because he's living in seattle but um that should be like the core lineup that's awesome that's awesome you were actually the the last show i saw uh oh no shit oh my god yeah i forgot we played that show yeah that was a that was a that was a good one but your set was great that night yeah yours too i remember being like really pretty blown away that you were able to sound like that as a three-piece i think i said something about that it was like it was like a weirdly i thought that like the sound was really good despite it being like one of the weirdest vibes (laughs) Uh, but i guess that's what happens sometimes i don't know it was like medieval music was going on when we got there or something yeah it wasn't irish Irish. (laughs) Um, yeah there was like a it was like very much like a puppet show and Spinal Tap type. Yeah. For it was like we showed up and it was like, nee, 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 nee. and it was like a, I'm pretty sure it was like a show up with your fiddle 
like it was like an Irish or like a Celtic music like jam session where yeah. you could just show up with your bagpipes or your fiddle and like join the yeah join the band. Um, wow. And there were some there were some stragglers that like stayed for the rock music. Yeah, there's like mandolins. <laughs> That was hey, it was a fun night. Eugene is weird. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much, Mo. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to great to speak with you. Yeah, Definitely. thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. You wanna Well, um why don't you tell us just to sign off about where people can buy the album and where the proceeds go to? Because Yeah. Um motroper.bandcamp.com um, and uh, the proceeds go to Defense Fund PDX which is like a mutual aid in Portland. Some of them went to Austin Mutual Aid um, because they were donating um, to sorry, Defense Fund PDX was also donating to Austin Mutual Aid for a while that's why I did that for a second but currently still going to Defense Fund PDX um, and yeah that's pretty much it. You know, on Twitter, like I mentioned, living inside Twitter. Yeah. Catch me online. Yeah. Um, and okay. look out for this 100 song album. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, okay. Cool, Mo. Thanks so much, dude. Yeah, thanks. See you soon. Yeah, we'll Bye. talk to you later. Bye. Talk to you later. True.